Well, this morning we're beginning a new series of messages based on the Gospel of Luke. And Doug likes the title, The Narrow Path, so that's what it is. It's Narrow Path. Uh, I tried to argue with him on that, but he won. Um, But the New Testament is filled with information and direction about what it means to follow Jesus. And it's often described as a narrow way or a narrow door or a narrow path. I mean, that journey of following Jesus is referred to as the narrow gate and the narrow road in Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14, where Matthew writes this, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 23 and 24, it's called a narrow door. Someone asked him, Jesus, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter it and will not be able to. So the narrow path can be summarized as this. Embracing Jesus' sacrifice for us, believing that he died for our sins, and that we choose then to live our life for him. That is the narrow path. So the narrow path is following Jesus. And we're told, and when we're told, narrow is the gate or narrow is the door, We're told that many will seek other avenues to heaven that they think are easier or that they think that's the way to get to heaven. But the only road that can possibly lead to eternal life is through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for mankind. And that's what we're going to be discovering as we work our way through the gospel of Luke from now until the first Sunday after Easter. Now, this is a long series. That's like three months worth of sermons on this. And Mike's got some assignments in there, and I've got one more, and Doug's got all the rest because we pay him to do that. So uh, he has to do the rest of them. Amen. Amen, right, Mike? I agree with that. Well, Doug assigned me the task of introducing this, but he gave me the title, The Reliability of the Gospels. Now, that's going to be a real boring thing to listen to, but I'm going to try to make it simple enough for us to enjoy it uh, and to understand it. But I also get to give you a little introduction to the Gospel of Luke. So let me put Luke in perspective by giving you an overview of the Bible. I hope you don't have a lunch reservation. (laughs) I want to give you a few facts about the New Testament, and then I want to focus on the four Gospels. Now, I love the Bible because the theme of the Bible is Jesus. And that theme can be described in three ways. First, someone is coming. I mean, this is the emphasis of the Old Testament. That someone is Jesus. In Josh McDowell's exciting book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, I call it exciting because it's nothing but scripture references. But in his book, he mentions that the Old Testament contains over 300 references to the Messiah that were fulfilled in Jesus. Yes, someone is coming because the Old Testament talked about it. The second theme of the Bible is someone is here. And that's the theme of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because the Gospels tell us the story of Jesus' life among us. It is Emmanuel, God with us. The rest of the New Testament can be described as someone is coming again. And that's the message of the entire New Testament. Jesus is coming again and be ready. Now, that's why I love the Bible. It's the story 
of Jesus. So was the Old Testament important? Jesus thought so. After his resurrection, Jesus was walking with two men on the road uh, to Emmaus. The two men were kept from recognizing Jesus, but Luke 24 verse 27 says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That was a lecture I would have liked to have heard. All these snip, tidbits in the, the, and snippets of information in the Old Testament would come to light, and you'd say, oh yeah, right, that's wonderful. I would have loved to have that lecture. Now, the books of the Old Testament, they even received an endorsement from Jesus. Again, in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus said, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So Jesus basically covered the whole Old Testament. He quoted from Moses. He talked about Jonah being three days in the belly of a fish. Jesus endorsed all of the Old Testament so that we know the Old Testament scriptures come from God. In fact, John 10, 35, Jesus said, the scriptures cannot be broken. So if we believe in Jesus, we have to accept the Old Testament as the inspired word of God. But what about the New Testament? Well, let me review a few facts about the New Testament. There are 27 books in the New Testament. The first four are the Gospels that tell the story of Jesus' life on this physical earth. And in a moment, we're going to look at those in more detail. Next comes the book of Acts, which gives us a history of the early church. And then the rest of the New Testament books are letters that were written to further clarify the mission and ministry of the church as well as give direction and encouragement to Christians. And often there are many references to Jesus coming again. Now the New Testament was written sometime between A.D. 50 and 95. And the first book of the New Testament was probably the book of 1 Thessalonians written by Paul around A.D. 51. The last book is the book of Revelation that was written around A.D. 95. And since Jesus died around A.D. 30, some people wonder why there weren't earlier books. But writing was rare in that day, and most Christians anticipated that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. So after two decades, the Holy Spirit gave perfect timing and perfect perspective in prompting several associates of Jesus to begin writing the memoirs about him. Now, as far as inspiration is concerned, the New Testament claims to be the inspired word of God. In John 16, 13, Jesus told his disciples, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. And then Jesus adds this, I am going to send the Holy Spirit and he will guide you into writing and remembering truth. That's why Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We come to the final book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, the last chapter, almost the last verse, chapter 22, verse 18, and it says this, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, 
If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Now some people have the impression that if Jesus said it, then it carries more weight than if Paul or Peter said it. It's like the person who said, if it ain't in red, I don't pay any attention to it. Well, some editions of our Bible do have what Jesus said in red. However, all Scripture is the Word of God. It all carries the same weight. All Scripture is inspired of God, and that includes the New Testament. So what about the Gospels? I'm going to get to Luke, okay? But what about the Gospels? Luke is just one of four books that we call the Gospels, and the word Gospels simply means good news. This is the good news about Jesus from four different witnesses. And the good news is we aren't saved by keeping the Old Testament laws. We are saved by putting our trust in Jesus Christ who died for our sins. Died for our sins in spite of the fact that we were imperfect. And those that choose Jesus as their Savior and make him the Lord of their life, those are the ones who choose the narrow path. Now, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called synoptic Gospels. Sin meaning together, synergy together, and optic meaning to see. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke saw events together, and much of their material is very similar. I mean, many people feel that since a great deal of it is verbatim, two of them use the third as a primary source recalling events and affirming those events. In fact, 91% of Mark's gospel is contained in Matthew. 53% of Mark's gospel is found in Luke. And John's gospel was written sometime later as an addition and a supplement to the other three gospels. Now here's something interesting from the Old Testament. According to Deuteronomy 17, in a courtroom there had to be two, preferably three, witnesses in an important trial. Well, think about this. God has not given us two witnesses or even three witnesses, but he has given us four reliable witnesses about the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a judge in a courtroom and four witnesses come in and all four witnesses give the very same testimony verbatim, word for word, what do you conclude? This is not good. This is not good. They've collaborated. They must be lying. It's when they tell the truth, but from four different angles, that they sound authentic. And that's what Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are doing for us. And they come at the story of Jesus from four different angles, four different perspectives. For example, Matthew says that when Jesus was on the road to Jericho, there were two blind men. Well, in the Gospel of Mark, he writes about the same incident, and he says this, there was a blind man named Bartimaeus on the road. Now, it doesn't, say that Matthew, it doesn't contradict Matthew's Gospel, but it's just telling us there's one man in particular that I remember, and his name was Bartimaeus. He doesn't even mention the other man. Far from undermining the credibility of the Scriptures and being contradictory, those kind of testimonies only enhance it, because the Bible does not read like a lie. 
So let me point out the differences between the four Gospels before we dive into a little bit of Luke. Let's start with the book of Matthew. Matthew was one of the twelve, one of the close associates of Jesus called disciples. And Matthew kind of tells his own story in his Gospel that's not told in any of the other three. Because in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Jesus went on from there and he saw a man named Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Now Matthew doesn't try to conceal the fact that Christ saved him from the depths. He was a tax collector. He was considered a traitor in the eyes of every loyal Jew. He was dishonorable. But Jesus transformed him from a lowly, despised tax collector to the inner circle of Jesus' friends. Talk about grace. Now we need to understand that the audience of Matthew's gospel is primarily the Jews. Remember, the Jews are looking for the coming Messiah. A Messiah who would take over the throne of David. A Messiah who would establish the glory days of Israel. One who would be king. However, they had a major misconception about the Messiah. They believed he would be a political Messiah. Overthrow Rome and establish an earthly kingdom. But Jesus came to be a spiritual Messiah. And overthrow the sin in people's lives. So Matthew's purpose in writing his gospel uh, to Jews is to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, he's trying to, to get his re Jewish readers to rethink their ideas about the Messiah. And he does that by trying to show that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. So Matthew begins with genealogies. Now listen how exciting and interesting this is. I'm not even going to put it on the screen. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Joseph. It goes on and on and on. But why does he begin his gospel with a genealogy? Well, you have to understand this is a gospel to the Jew. And the Jew searching for the Messiah would be very interested in genealogy. The pedigree was important. The Messiah had to be traced back to David and then back to Abraham. And that's what Matthew does in his genealogy. He's grabbing the attention of his audience, the Jewish people. And so over and over again in Matthew's gospel, he quotes from the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. Let me give you a couple. For example, in the birth of Jesus, we just finished Christmas season, this should be fresh in your mind. Matthew says that an angel came to the Virgin Mary, that she's going to be giving birth to a son. They're calling him Jesus because he'll save people from their sins. And in Matthew 1, verses 22 and 23, we read this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, if you're a Jew reading Matthew's letter, you're going, oh yeah, I remember that. Isaiah said that. When Jesus was born, Herod the king was so threatened. I preached about this a few weeks ago. He was so threatened by the news that he tried to kill all the male babies in Bethlehem. 
Mary and Joseph were told by an angel, flee to Egypt. And Matthew says in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, So he, that is Joseph, got up, took the child and his mother during the night and fled for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Again, another prophecy fulfilled in Jesus that the Jews would recognize. That's just a snippet of how Matthew relates to the Jewish readers. His gospel is filled with references to Old Testament prophecy that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, which every Jew would have known about. That someone who is coming, that someone who is described in the Old Testament, that Messiah has already come. He's here. Let's move to the gospel of Mark. Mark's gospel was a gospel to the Roman Christians. Mark was a close associate of Peter, and tradition says that Mark was the interpreter for Peter, that he listened to Peter preach, and that he wrote down accurately everything and that he remembered in Peter's sermons. And Mark's gospel is the shortest gospel, yet it is a vivid account of Jesus' ministry. Mark's gospel to the Romans is a gospel of action. The adverb immediately is used 12 times in Mark. It goes from one separate episode of Jesus' life to another, and it's action-packed. It just keeps moving right along from one story to another. And many feel that Mark's gospel was the first to be written. And I've already stated that Matthew and Luke probably used Luke's gospel as a source. A footnote in my New International Study Bible says this, Evident points to the church at Rome as the primary recipient of Mark's gospel because Mark explains Jewish customs and he translates Aramaic words. Now, of special interest in Mark's gospel is persecution and martyrdom because already Nero was beginning to persecute Christians in Rome. That's why Mark records in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. That's the narrow path. And persecution might result when you walk in it. But imagine being a Roman Christian when you are reading this. Listen to Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. Jesus said, No one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me, and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields. And with them, persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. One other passage in Mark that deals with persecution is chapter 13, verses 11 through 13, where he says, whenever you, where Jesus says, whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say what is ever given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. You see, Mark is writing to Roman Christians who are going to be persecuted. And he's trying to encourage them. 
Now, although Mark doesn't sign his name, there's a a little incident recorded in Mark's gospel that many think is Mark's signature. Kind of like when an artist, you know, uh, conceals their signature in the corner of a painting. It's not obvious that it's there, but you kind of look at it and say, oh yeah, that's it. Well, there are two verses of interest here that that I think are interesting. It's in chapter Mark, uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 50 and, and 52. And it says this, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Mark's saying, that's me, that's me. (laughs) It doesn't relate to anything else in there, except that, you know, he probably had to throw that in. I don't know, that's speculation. You can do whatever you want to. That's your freebie for today. So, uh, but anyway, let's move on to John's gospel. John's gospel was written for everyone. Some scholars have called this a a supplemental gospel. And it's kind of like John presupposes everybody already knows about the other three gospels. And so he's writing his gospel much later, about A.D. 85, 30 years after the other gospels. Now John was one of the youngest of Jesus' disciples, possibly a teenager when he left his father's fishing business and followed Jesus. And he waited until he was an older man to write this gospel. And he records a whole series of private conversations of Jesus, some with Nathaniel. He meets with a Jewish leader named Nicodemus in the middle of the night saying, you must be born again. He has an encounter with a Samaritan woman at a well and tells her, I give you water that you'll never thirst again. I think what he's trying to do, he's trying to tell us that Jesus engages with everyone he comes into contact with. Jew or Gentile. But John's purpose in writing his gospel is to emphasize the deity of Jesus. He omits some of the human side of Jesus because already it must have been that some people were saying, you know, Jesus, oh, he was a good man, but he was not God. So John begins his gospel like this. In the beginning was the word, reference to Jesus, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made by Him. And then in verse 14, he adds, The Word became flesh and lived among us. You see how these gospel writers are starting their book with a real target thing to their audience, who they're trying to communicate to? Later in John 17, verse 5, he records Jesus as saying, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. He's God in the flesh. He's making that his claim himself. He is both man and God. In John chapter 5, verse 18, John says, For this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. When the Jews threatened to stone Jesus, he asked John, he asked in John 10, verses 31 and 32, for which of my miracles are you attempting to stone me? And they said, we're not, we're not stoning you for any of these, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And again in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John writes, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by leaving, you may have life in his name. 
So let me recap the gospel so far. Matthew was written to the Jews attempting to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. Mark was written to the Roman Christians to encourage them as they faced persecution. And John writes to everybody, especially those who had doubts about Jesus being both God and man. So what about Luke? That's what we're going to spend three months in, so I finally got there. I got two minutes left. I don't think we'll see what we can do here. Luke's gospel is for Gentiles. Gentiles who have become Christians. Luke himself was a Gentile. And his gospel portrays Jesus Christ not as the Messiah of the Jews, but the Savior of the whole world. Luke wanted to show that the place of the Gentile Christian in God's kingdom is based on the teaching of Jesus. He wanted to commend the preaching of the gospel to the whole world. This is not a Jewish thing, is, is his point. This is for everybody, for the Gentiles. In Luke chapter 3, he also has a genealogy, like Matthew. But he doesn't trace the genealogy back to Abraham. He goes all the way back to Adam, the father of every human being. He wants Gentile Christians to know that they are included in God's plan of salvation. Everyone is included in God's plan of salvation. So let's take a look at how, this is the scripture verses I was assigned. So I finally got to them. It only took a while. Doug, if you're listening, I'm sorry. You won't ask me to preach again, but I can handle that. Um, look at how this begins. And I might say, in the Greek, this is all one sentence, but I'm going to take a breath. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the very first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now those four verses tell us a lot about what the Bible means when it says in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Luke had to carefully investigate. He had to study. And he had to deliberately write an orderly account. God breathed doesn't mean that God dictated every word or that God grabbed the writer's arm and guided the pencil. No. If we were in a time machine and we were to go back to the first century and see Luke writing and say, Luke, what are you writing? He goes, oh, no, I think it's chapter 12 of Luke. I don't have any idea. No. God doesn't dictate in that way. The writers use their own recollection. They use their own memory. And God breathes through them as they write to guide them into all truth. Now, because Luke was a Greek, he was well-educated in Greek culture. The first four verses of this gospel of his, like I said, are one sentence in the original Greek, but they are written in a refined, academic, classical style. But then for the rest of the gospel, Luke doesn't use the language of scholars, but rather he goes to the common person, the language of the village and the street, 
Because Luke wrote so that people would understand Jesus. Not that they would admire his brain and his literary skill. But that caught the attention of the, the, the Gentiles for sure. Now he mentions a, name, a man by the name of Theophilus in verse 3. Now Theophilus means lover of God. And Luke addresses him as the most excellent Theophilus. So this guy must have been some kind of high-ranking high uh, official in the Roman government. A Gentile who had been exposed to Jesus because Luke adds, so that you may know a certain, the certainty of the things that you have been taught. We also know that Luke wrote a second book to Theophilus, the book of Acts, to tell the story of the beginning of the church. So even though Theophilus is addressed personally in these opening verses, the rest of Luke's gospel appeals to every Gentile. Now we know from Paul's letters that Luke was a physician who accompanied the Apostle Paul on several of Paul's missionary journeys, probably because Paul's, Paul's health was precarious. And Luke's training as a doctor accounts for the special place given in his gospel for the healing miracles of Jesus. They're all given in detail. And he often uses technical terms in recounting the incident that were used in the medical language of that day. And I hope we catch those and point those out to you along the way. Luke also includes certain sayings and parables of Jesus that are not in the other Gospels. That are of particular interest to non-Jews. Like Luke quotes Jesus as saying in Luke 13, 29, people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and will take their place at the feast in the kingdom of God. You see what he's doing right there? Jesus is for everyone. Everyone is welcome to Jesus. Now Jesus, or Luke, is the only one who records the story of the Good Samaritan. You know that story found in Luke 10. A man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among thieves. They left him for dead. A priest, a Levite, both religious Jewish leaders. They had no time for him. But then a Samaritan came by. Stopped. Helped. And that was probably a little dig on the religious leaders. But the hero of the story, who's the hero of the story? It's not a Jew. Gentile. Samaritan. Despised by the Jewish people. That's good news. Because Jesus is for everyone. Luke is the only one who records the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Now the Lauren Doty Reader's Digest version reads like this. A certain man had two sons. The younger said, Father, give me my share of the estate. He took the money, went to far country, wasted it, began to feed, all, uh, began to feed the pigs, ate what they ate. said, ah, I'm going back to my father. He went back to his father. His father welcomed me with open arms. There was an older brother in the field, and the older brother would not rejoice, and he pouted. Okay, that's the story of that. I get to preach on that in March sometimes. You see, the younger son represented the Gentile nation that had strayed from God, away from God, but God has welcomed him, him back. The fathers welcomed him back. The older brother kind of represents the Jewish nation that were resisting the open arms of the father. Luke, what's he trying to say? Jesus is the Savior of all. He wants everyone saved. Now there is a key verse in Luke, in Luke and, and I think it's Luke 19.10. Where Jesus says this, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus is for everyone. 
Well, let me wrap up this introduction with a few more tidbits about the Gospel of Luke. We would be here all day if I were to expand on this list. That's why I thought the reliability of the Gospels as a topic would be impossible. Um, But these are some things that I think we're going to discover as we walk through Luke's Gospel over the next three months. Things like Luke is the most comprehensive Gospel. He documents the story of Jesus all the way from the Annunciation of John the Baptist to his ascension. Nobody else does that in our Gospel. Luke is the most universal Gospel. In Luke, the Gentiles are often put in favorable light. They are the heroes of the story, like the Good Samaritan. Luke's gospel is the one most interested in the roles of women, children, and social outcasts. The gospel of Luke is uh, the one most interested in prayer. He has seven different references to Jesus praying that are found in his gospel alone. Luke's gospel is the one with the most emphasis on the Holy Spirit, And on joy. Luke's gospel is the one with the most emphasis on preaching the good news, the gospel. In fact, that term is used ten times in this gospel and only once in the the other gospels. And then in the book of Acts, he uses it 15 times. What I'm trying to say is, my friends, is that we are in for a real adventure as we work our way through Luke over the next three months. So fasten your seatbelts, grab your Bible. It's going to be a great ride. Now, combined together, these four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all focus on the life and teachings of Jesus who has transformed the world and transformed us. And it's difficult to argue with lives that have been changed because of accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. We are walking on the narrow path. But these four Gospels encourage us for three reasons. First of all, they give us a history. It's not a myth. It's reliable. It's the bedrock of our faith. Second, they give us revelation. As you turn these pages, you say, this is the voice of God. This is the face of God. This is what God is like. This is God speaking to us. And finally, they give us a challenge. Because with every page, there's Two questions that we need to answer. One, what do you think of Jesus? Two, what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? That's the invitation to choose the narrow path, to choose to follow Jesus. And I pray your faith will be strengthened as we walk together this narrow path with the gospel of Luke as our guide. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. As Peter said, we did not follow cleverly invented fables when we were told about the coming of of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. Thank you that you have given us reliable witnesses to believe. And in believing, we have life eternal through Jesus Christ. Guide us as we walk the narrow path, choosing to follow Jesus as our Savior and Lord. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.